Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kim Winter, CEO of Logistics Executive Group. Thanks for joining us again. Well, it's my pleasure today to have with us uh, two guests. I'm joined by Daryl Judd, Global COO and Head of Corporate Advisory in M&A, the Logistics Executive Group, over the last 20 years or so. Welcome, Daryl, from Dubai. Good afternoon, Kim, and a uh, pleasure to be joining you. Thanks. And uh, our other guest is our Managing Director for APAC, Asia Pacific, Dominic Rigo. Dom, welcome from Sydney. Thanks, Kim. Looking forward to a very meaty discussion. <laughs> so, gentlemen, um, the topic today is corporate advisory and specifically around mergers and acquisitions uh, across the supply chain and logistics spectrum. Uh, an area that uh, each of you have both had uh, about 20 years plus experience in, so I'm expecting some uh, genuine insights and some healthy discussion and debate today. Perhaps uh, I'll start with you, Dom. Um, Dom, you've uh, had a fairly extensive experience across the APAC region primarily, and uh, I just wanted to get a bit of a feel from you to kick, off, kick us off today around what you're seeing as the key drivers of the M&A deal environment currently. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Look, from my perspective, um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be on both sides of the fence when it comes to M&A, um, having been uh, on, the, on the buying side, um, closing uh, close to 12 um, M&A deals um, in any one year, as well as uh, on the other side, helping companies um, get the right due diligence um, in, in looking at any M&As uh, going forward as well. And from my perspective, um, one of the key things um, that I've seen, especially with um, uh, deals where borders have been closed, is, is all about the, the basic logistics and the fundamentals of that. Um, and what I mean by that is all about um, when a buyer and a seller um, um, has a reflection on on making an accurate valuation on on future earnings and and having borders closed and being able to you know not have the freedom to be able to make those accurate uh, valuations that's certainly been the biggest uh, impact that i've seen um through all this uh, COVID impact um through the border closures itself um so you know it, it's all about coming down to making accurate valuations on future earnings um, and when certain borders are closed and, and not being able to be hands-on when it comes to that, that's what I've seen as the, the biggest impact um, throughout. But saying that, um, you know, there's been lots of um, consideration you know, on earnouts, um, sellers retaining equity and so forth. But at the end of the day, um, there's lots of capital out there still uh, to, put, to put to work and um, some fantastic buying opportunities uh, in the market, especially for the uh, savvy investors out there. Um, and from our perspective, um, lots of really good tools um, to really balance the whole uh, risk between buyers and sellers in making those accurate valuations. So you can see there's a lot of exciting times ahead. Thanks, Don. Um, Daryl, what are the sort of drivers you're seeing? I mean, you're, you're a, mainly operating in different marketplaces than Don currently. Uh, you're involved in a number of deals, but you're also exposed to a range of deals that are occurring uh, around your markets. What, what are you seeing as the key drivers? Yeah. Well, thanks, Kim, and, uh, you know, interesting points that, that Dominic makes. And I guess, you know, the, the, the general themes around m and at this time are, are probably consistent irrespective of whether we're in a sort of emerging market or developing or more advanced markets like, 
those that, that Dominic said him. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to agree with Dominic that you know risk is a big uh, consideration for organisations, particularly those that were mid-transaction phase uh, prior to COVID nineteen, and you know the being able to adopt tools to be able to manage you through that is has been a, a critical thing that we are seeing in those transactions. Um, that said, I think, you know, one of the interesting things to come out of the, the last global financial crisis, and I think we'll see come out of this one, is, you know, the, the freight and logistics sectors uh, coming out of the last year, we went through a period of consolidation. In other words, we had a lot of bigger companies looking to grow their footprints uh, beyond their shores and use the acquisition route as the fastest channel to do that. And in, to a large degree, we're seeing similar trends, although it's still very early, uh, in our emergence from, from COVID, um, what we are seeing and certainly what we're feeling in terms of inquiries is uh, during COVID-19, there was a shakeup of capability and our consumer demand changed, our behaviours changed, you know, a gravitation towards online, e-commerce capability, last mile, surge in last mile volumes. And so, you know, there's certainly been some interest in uh, from companies looking at twofold. One, where do I grow next? How do I grow? And more importantly, how do I look at uh, either two areas? One, the areas that the crisis uncovered uh, inside my business. How do I fix those vulnerabilities through acquisition? In other words, repairing that through capability building. Or how do I expand and build capability that's now needed to cater for future growth trends, um, such as e-commerce and last mile? So that, that are probably two of the big dynamics that we're seeing in our market and we're seeing in terms of fielding the inquiries that, that we're getting. So if I, if I hear you right, then there's a considerable amount of activity going on still. Uh, is there a bit of feedback from both of you just in terms of volume of deals going on across the supply chain and logistics spaces. I mean, there's. We'll talk, I think, further further into the discussion about some of the sectors that have uh, been heavy in in, uh, in consolidation and, and activity around uh, activity around uh, mergers in particular, and uh, and quite a few acquisitions as well. What what are we seeing in regards to the impacts of the fact that a lot of people involved in these processes are remote. So M&A traditionally has been teams going on site, going across different countries onto the, onto the client site, getting into the data rooms and, and what have you. Has that remote factor really been a, a, an effect on deals being done? Has it improved deals or diminished the, the chances of deals being done? Don, from your point of view? Yeah, look, look, I can, I can give you a, a full Asia Pacific view, and um, from quite a, quite a large region, um, the deals that we're seeing is um, um, more deals that have been uh, delayed in, in somewhat, in in terms of uh, making those uh, accurate valuations. Um, so, so some delays there, but um, certainly um, no spikes in terminations of deals at all. So that that's a very Interesting fact there. Um, the, the delayed uh, deals is really around the, the logistics, as you mentioned. Um, if you look at um, any acquisitions that happen across a, um, a country or a region, even um, within those sectors um, or, or those geographies, even um, there are quite a, a matrix of um, of what borders are closed and what borders are open. So. Uh, in going through a, um, a due diligence uh, process for an M&A, 
um, we find that um, the delays that have be- have occurred has been through certain countries um, or certain jurisdictions um, that have had borders closed. Um, but then again, you know, how we work through that is is us- utilizing third party networks. So because we've got teams um, in all the, the key countries across the region itself, um, our clients have uh, you know, turned to us for our help to help um, bridge the gap when it comes to those border closings and, and using um, a, an interim uh, medium like, like uh, logistics executive to really penetrate some of those markets um, to really uncover what's actually happening on the ground uh, in some of these uh, areas that have been closed. So some delays, but certainly no terminations from that perspective. Daryl? Uh, Kim, I mean, you know, similar feedback from, from the Middle East and from Africa, Europe. I mean, we are seeing obviously an increased number of deal opportunities on the table. We've, the last three or four weeks as organisations have emerged from lockdown, uh, we've seen a rash of, of new mandates in the form of both buy and sell. Uh, obviously, those that are selling are, are looking at uh, capitalising on the capabilities they have or looking for a more strategic partner to help them uh, you know, re-kickstart growth again. And those that are buying are now revisiting um, that ability to be able to quickly bolt on capability that perhaps uh, prior to COVID-19 was was somewhat down the board agenda or had been kicking around for some time but hadn't come to a deal realisation. Uh, Organisations are now seeing this as an opportunity to pick up, uh, and I'll use this word carefully, you know, distressed assets or assets that are now more complementary to that capability building quite quickly. Um, you know, Dominic makes a good point when he talks about sort of, you know, uh, remote teams and, and use of advisors. I think that's been a trend that's been increasing for some time. Um, as valuations have become more challenging for organisations and forward-looking valuations have appeared more and more in logistics. Um, So virtual data rooms have been around for some time and that's certainly helped facilitate traction during this period of lockdown for many organisations to keep that deal flow moving. Um, But more importantly, um, there's a greater reliance on on third-party advisors to validate and test information and test internal findings. It's it's been very easy to run off and, and sort of do an acquisition based on, you know, feeling and emotion. And uh, I think, you know, prior, even prior to COVID-19, organisations were looking at more quantifiable data points and more soundboarding of sensibility because the shape of the acquisition had changed. We weren't buying companies that just looked like us. If we're a warehousing company, we were buying into the e-commerce space. If we're a transport company, we were starting to evolve into the last mile. And those business models were subtly different um, to what we were accustomed to to ourselves with our own businesses. And so there was a greater use of experts to help give us soundboarding perspective and to understand where the real value sat. So those two trends are likely to continue, and they certainly served us fairly well whilst we were in that lockdown period and, and teams couldn't get to jump jump on planes and easily get inside businesses. So, um, yeah, that'll be a trend that will continue. Yeah, and Daryl, just on that point as well, um, you know, there are certain, um, there's really some very distinct um, key buckets, um, deals that have, haven't started yet, um, deals that uh, have started but hasn't settled, um, and deals that are going through the um, the final negotiation path. So, um, in each of those three key buckets, even um, we've we've seen a, a myriad of uh, of volume that's been uh, flowing through. Um, as I mentioned earlier, around some of the delays. I was more referring to um, the deals that have started but uh, not settled yet. 
Um, and there's certainly a lot of tools um, that are out there as well um, from a uh, assessment of, of how risky um, COVID has uh, impacted um, this the whole environment um, and more so you know, how has uh, companies um, worked through that. And one of the big things that, that I've uh, observed so far is it's all about um, management styles. So, you know, looking at different um, organisations, there's been different management styles on, on how um, management has actually tackled uh, the crisis itself. Um, you know, transition of labour, massive um, key part of that. Um, looking at um, you know contract review, uh, review processes. Um, so you know, rev- balancing the the revenue structures that are out there, um, contracts that are in the pipeline, um, contracts that are long term, uh, right through the cost structures as well, um, like people and so forth as well. So you can see how the various buckets are out there, but also. The management styles um, has has played a, a, a big impact um, on the M and A activity out there. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely, totally agree with you, Dominic. And I think that's where that that more scientific approach to understanding material impact of some of the post COVID nineteen themes and events that have occurred within it. And you touched on a you know, good one in terms of transitional labour, um, which for a lot of companies that are in emerging markets that haven't adopted automated processes or technology mainly because their, their labour costs are so low, um, they've had the benefit of enjoying a, a more manual process compared to someone in a labor, higher labour market. You know, when you're doing an M&A, understand the volatility that may occur within your labour pools through COVID-19 is an important part of that material value that sits in the supply chain. So, yeah, they absolutely agree. There's been a much closer look at how that impact has happened on deals that are currently mid-transaction. Um, and your know, use of the, the the tools that obviously yourself and the, the business has that we use and, and others, um, it's been a much more granular approach to that. And I think that's been a critical part of um, keeping those deals moving through, but also, as you say, management style rather than just pushing through the deal, actually take, or, or walking away from it completely, but taking a more perspective look at it and understanding what sits within those, those buckets that you referred to. Um, that's been a yep. noticeable change in the transaction. And if anything, that's pushed the transaction time out a little bit, but it's reinforced some of the value areas that you know, for what companies are looking to acquire. What we're seeing uh, right across the market is tends to be that a lot of the larger players across both from a pure play logistics perspective uh, and also in supply chain upstream and downstream supply chain organisations, some of the bigger players, well cashed up, um, may have benefited from um, the current crisis because of their, either their manufacturing or the resources they've got at their disposal um, or in the particular sector that they're playing uh, in a high demand uh, area that they're needing to supply or they may just be uh, just well cashed up, as I said. Uh, so we're seeing quite a bit of interest from organisations to see what is happening in the market. How does the availability of capital play into the general perspective of deals being done in the market at the moment? Well, is, is capital finding is capital easier to come by now? Is it more difficult? What, what are you both finding? Dominic. Yeah, look, from my perspective, um, yeah, uh, capital um, you know, in the two key forms, debt and equity, um, there's certainly an abundance of uh, of equity um, that's out there. Um, a, lot of, a lot of VCs that are just looking for the right deals and so forth. And again, I make reference to the um, the savvy investors out there. Um, they're really out there to really target um, some of, some of the 
distressed assets and uh, and looking at um, opportunities that um, have come about through the crisis uh, as a whole. Um, and, and really from the, from the debt side, you know, money globally has never been this cheap, you know, so, so that being the case, you know, there's a lot of opportunistic um, uh, buyers that are out there um, and, 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 and how they go about uh, raising uh, the right funds that are out there even. Um, uh, there's certainly an abundance that I'm seeing out there, especially in the Asia-Pacific market, that's for sure. Yeah, I echo that, Kim. I mean, if you look at the transactions we've had and the mega deals that have occurred in the last 18 months, uh, you know, SIVA, DSV examples, um, you know, Panalpina, the, the, the bottom line is there's a twofold to that. There's a lot of capital still sitting on companies' balance sheets at the moment. And despite COVID-19, you know, most logistics companies have done reasonably well out of COVID-19. I mean, yes, we had some impact in certain areas and, and the airlines did it pretty tough. Um, and, and whilst the GDP um, is, is, you know, at, at a sort of decreasing rate at the present moment, it will rebound, you know, volumes as a result are down, but they're holding up. They're not, they haven't fallen off a cliff. And, um, and that's, a, that's a really important part. So, you know, road transport still moved. Um, yes, ocean freight was down temporarily, but there's a bouncing back quite quickly as things return to normal. Um, rail freight was up because obviously disruption to, to trucking labour caused rail volumes to be a more reliable mode to ship. So generally speaking, logistics companies have held up relatively well. Um, and that cash is still sitting on a lot of the balance sheets um, that's available for deployment. We can't talk about capital without touching on US interest rates, uh, which are obviously a big driver for, for where value sits. You know, US interest rates are at all-time lows at the present moment. Um, I don't think in the forecast there's many economists that would be hedging that to go upwards significantly anytime soon. And so, yeah. as Dominic points out, cost of capital is, is really cheap at the moment. So when you have that environment and you have a lot of money swelling around on balance sheets or ability to leverage your balance sheet, um, then it makes total sense that you know we're, we're, you want to use that to your best advantage um, rather than have it tied up there because if you leave it tied up there, it's eventually going to find its way back to shareholders in the form of a return of capital, and that's not too desirable for growth plans. And so you've got to deploy it somewhere. And the question coming out of COVID-19 that the customers we're talking to is, well, where do I deploy it and how does that complement, one, my growth strategy can, it, can that be used to accelerate that and to recover some of the, the lost growth? And two, uh, what does my future market look like that I now need to think about bolting on you know, capabilities, as I said earlier? Um, if you look at venture capital, you know, we have, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong on the stat, but I saw an article yesterday, you have 44% down on, on capital injections in 2020 compared to 2019. Um, inflows are up. To, to VC companies as, as investors are looking for greater returns than that they would get from having money in the bank account. And so, you know, VCs by their own nature have got to use that money. They've got to deploy it. They've got to put it in places where it produces a return greater than, than what uh, the market can. And so by default, I think the second part of 2020 and into 2021, we will see a lot of that money into the market. And undoubtedly that will enter in areas of hotspots digital transformation, manufacturing transformation, logistics, e-commerce, last mile, all of those growth sectors that sort of did reasonably well under COVID-19, notwithstanding healthcare and pharmaceutical. 
So I think I think you know Dominic makes a very good point. Cost of capital has never been cheaper, and it will be deployed. Yeah, I think just on that point, uh, Daryl, um, I can see a lot more consideration being put on earnouts. Um, you know, sellers retaining um, equity. Um, you know, if I if I cast our minds back to uh, the GFC, even um, the leaderboard changed four times within one quarter, um, and it's all about which companies uh, are too far leveraged and, and which companies uh, are not. Uh, and as a result of that, um, seeing where the opportunities are. Um, and as a result of all this, um, you know, we're going to see a lot more impact on consumer behavior um, that's impacted um, M&A deals. Uh, if, if I look at two traditional um, M&A categories, even the, the like-for-like acquisitions where you're, you're purchasing a direct competitor to get uh, you know, more synergy or unlocking synergies and so forth, that's been predominantly the um, the the, the lion's share of all the M&A activity um, you know, pre-2019 um, even, you know, we're going to see a lot more M&A activity in the, the category or, or channel expansion. So, you know, buying of, of new category or, or channels out there. Uh, you touched on um, the whole digital side of things, and, um, and that's what I mean by the, the channel expansion. So, you know, companies out there that... Um, just don't really have a, um, a digital uh, means of, of selling their product even, um, digital go to the market and so forth. They don't have time right now to, um, to develop that skill set. So you know, a lot of um, category or channel expansion in, in M&A deals where um, companies are going to need to have an online presence, um, uh, a white label offering um, very fast. And the only way they can do that is uh, through M&A activity and, and very fast M&A activity. So um, we're going to see a lot more of this um, category or, or channel expansion as a result of all that as well. I absolutely agree with you, Dominic. Um, you, you, you know, you spot on when you say that there's this, this channel niche development, the capability building is, is going to be the number one agenda uh, as opposed to like for like and, and simply buying consolidated volume. Uh, or consolidate EBITDA. EBITDA is an easy transaction to do. It's an easy transaction value. But what it doesn't do is allow you to evolve your market and, and channel acquisitions and niche spaces will. You know, you know, to use a live example, I was talking to a major luxury goods manufacturer today that doesn't have an online presence. Clearly during COVID-19 with their brand stores closed, uh, they had to turn on on pretty quickly. Now, the, the giant marketplaces become the uh, the obvious areas to do that. But the problem with that is they lose control of their pricing strategy and their brand strategy. And so very quickly now, as they emerge from that, knowing that their customers may never want to return to a, a store footprint or will be slow to return to that model, now that they've become a average shoppers online, they will need to develop an omni-channel solution that includes an e-commerce digital element, which in turn means a logistics opportunity. And I think, you know, one of the opportunities that, that we're getting fielding almost daily from logistics companies is, you know, uh, how do I, you know, can I, can I acquire a company that can bolt on that white labeling e-commerce element? I can serve the logistics out the back end of that, but I can take that service offering. It's a turnkey solution for my brand owners to allow them to turn that on very quickly. Um, and I think that will be an increasing part of what we see in the M&A channels right now. Cross-border will also be an area where there'll be a heightened degree of, of interest as obviously last mile volumes increase through the through that online sale process. So I think last mile, e-commerce, digital will all be you know, hotspots and, 
if you look at even just you know in our side of our own business, the inquiry rates we've had over the last three or four weeks as we've started to come out of this lockdown and organizations have started to understand what behavior change means to their markets, um, that's now reshaping what a potential target may look like. And, uh, and I think you're, you're right, the channel, the channel segment will be the fastest growing this year. Just, just to, uh, while you're talking about e-commerce and the opportunities and, and drivers around that, uh, I read an interesting uh, op-ed yesterday, I think it was, from a fairly notable journalist in the Sydney Morning Herald online. And uh, without mentioning the retailer's name, it was about e-commerce and it was about how this particular individual had ordered XYZ overnight and had it arrive on the doorstep, including frozen food to the grocery segment um, the next morning and then did an analysis, because he's an economist, of how much the cost or the loss was on delivering that consignment uh, into, into his house uh, the next day. So there's a lot going on in e-commerce. We know it's, it's a massive area that's been, uh, it's been driven hard by the fact that so many people have been remote. It's a lot of success stories, uh, but at the same time, it's a fairly, uh, fairly dangerous game to play in e-commerce unless people are, companies are, are well positioned. What is your sense in regards to uh, deals that are being done around M&A that is being done or investments around the e-commerce space? Can you reflect in on any uh, experiences that you, you're seeing taking place there, good, bad or ugly? I don't want to jump in on that one. Um, it, can be a, it look, it's an interesting point you make, and, and I'll swing it a little bit towards the last mile carrier. You know, we saw a rash of money going into last mile uh, prior to COVID-19 based on the promise of a growing e-commerce volume market. Um, I guess what COVID-19 did for us is it solidified that volume. And more importantly, it solidified the behavior that actually I'm quite comfortable ordering my groceries online or, or getting my, uh, you know, my, my order from uh, you know, H&M on shipped to me directly out of the UK. And, and so that volume and that behavior change will now underpin another leap forward in e-commerce traffic, which will ultimately drive greater returns in last mile, which is a segment that has traditionally struggled because it's been, you know, last mile is not a cheap segment to operate in by any means. You need some form of asset to do it, or you need a, a, a wide distribution network to do it. It's not always as profitable unless you have volume, volume being the key to that. Um, secondly, you know, the deck tech play, the technology that wraps that together to be able to operate a, a virtual carrier management type arrangement where you may not necessarily have all the assets in one place, but you're levering the, leveraging the assets of others in order to drive that volume to, has always been an evolution that the industry has now uh, you know, been adopting for, for a long time. Those two elements will now continue to accelerate. And so you'll see greater investment in those as investors look for faster returns through those growth bounces that, that COVID-19 will give. Um, but, you know, e-commerce is a, is a tough game to be in. But the problem is this. COVID-19 has taught us that unless we have an e-commerce offering, our bricks and mortar offering is very, very vulnerable. And if you suddenly turn that off or we don't get the foot traffic through our stores, that's followed with a massive decrease in sales. And so, you know, without e-commerce being a, a compensator for that as a secondary growth channel for our businesses, actually we're just as vulnerable without it as we are with it. Yeah, and we've seen as, as a result of that, we've seen you know, big brands that are out there um, completely freeze and, and have just a, um, 
a balance sheet that hasn't gone anywhere uh, as a result of not having that e com presence even. Um, so, you know, huge impact on uh, the business performance um, and, you know, grinding halt uh, revenues even as a result of companies that just didn't have that um, e-commerce presence at all, really. So um, that's a that's a classic example there of, uh, of why that divestments uh, that, are, that are needed for these uh, organisations um, more and more throughout the um the business as a whole even yeah that direct consumer option is now a necessity for a business um, previously it was a sales channel that organizations were sort of building towards or developing or adopting but now it's become a necessity um, and i think the, the second part of that sentence sits around this word digital transformation um, you know even in a retail sense if i used to re use retail as an example um, you know social distancing store limits uh, will all affect our cardless payment methods, you know, frictionless uh, engagement, all will affect how we engage with our shoppers. And increasingly, that direct-to-consumer option will help us underpin any decrease or vulnerability we have in that part of the business and therefore becomes a necessity. Uh, and, then, you know, if you look at the inquiries we're, we're fielding, um, they're all about capabilities in that area. Um, you know, small to medium-sized warehousing companies that have pallet spaces in the available markets I can put my forward inventory into, digital solutions or logistics companies that offer a disruptive technology that allow me to connect to a direct consumer rather than through a third party, um, the ability to be able to use technology to migrate my inventory around multiple inventory points to give flexibility to how I serve that direct consumer option. Um, Rail assets that substitute me uh, a channel through road where I'm vulnerable to labour and to time. Um, those sorts of things are becoming, you know, the increasing desires or wish list from, from potential inquirers. And that's, you know, if you look at all the inquiries we've taken over the last three or four weeks, guys, that's what we're, that's what we're seeing, right? Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a definite theme uh, evolving there. And they all sit around growth and capability underpinned by what COVID-19 has helped us accelerate, changing behaviours, um, even in the cold chain space. You know, the, the whole pivot towards food security, domestic uh, food production to lessen our reliance on import foods, um, all of those things are driving greater interest in cold chain assets, uh, particularly here in the Middle East and in markets like Africa, uh, where those supply channels are still reasonably immature, or are relatively underserved by uh, consideration to the investment being made on the production side. Um, and I think those will be continuing agendas as we sort of get into the coming months and into 2021. Yeah, which is quite ironic, actually, because um, if you were to wind back the clock just only six months ago, you know, pre-19 pre even, um, you know, the whole e-commerce uh, e space, um, you know, surplus and fully saturated uh, market and um, the abundance of um, e-marketplaces that, that are out there um, yeah, it was just it was just um, a dying industry even um, but now with uh, this this whole um, uh, crisis that we're going through with COVID even um, each of those uh, e-commerce marketplaces and in uh, the e-commerce uh, presence and capability has been more valuable now than, than it's ever been, which has been quite, quite an amazing um, transition. And, and getting moving back into the M&A space on that, um, you know, 
opportunistic M&A um, you know, hotspots and, and having skilled acquirers out there with strong balance sheets um, or even, you know, buoyant stock price even um, with, with sufficient credit facilities, um, they've gone out there and, and, and had an opportunity to really pick their own dance partners even um, because it's been a, a very promising growth uh, through the, these technologies and these solutions that are out there um, in sectors that really are out there to gain first mover advantage even. So that, that's a, that's the rapid and, and stark contrast that we've seen out there uh, just in the last six months even. Oh, and the, the, the piece of that equation that's driving that is it's not just our consumer behaviour. We've turned on a whole new consumer to this market. I mean, the number of stories that, that you hear daily of people who never shopped online that are now doing their grocery shopping online, you know, myself included, um, that previously would have been, yeah, yeah, but maybe I'll get to that some other time. That's not for me, or I like the experience of the in-store, you know, picking my own fruit and vegetables. When that's not an option for you and the only channel for you to get that is online, you know, uh, over time that becomes a, and it's served well, it becomes a, a desire, you know, and, and how much that new consumer will never go back to that previous channel because they've gone through that experience and discovered that actually it worked for them. And I think there's a massive... Yeah. There are some statistics out in the US that show that, you know, a huge new consumer base has now turned itself to an online environment. And so, they, you know, they're not only just necessities, they are actually an opportunity for growth for organisations that were in or around that integrated logistics space. And, uh, you know, bringing it back to M&A, it comes back to, you know, what are we seeing for targets? Kim, it's a question you asked earlier. There's a definite consolidation of opportunity in the areas where there's capability development or as Dominic puts it, you know, new channels. So you yeah, thanks. So you've both talked about digitization as a driver uh, or as an enabler as well. Uh, you've talked about e-commerce um, driven by the current environment, although I think we know that you know, e-commerce was it was a big mover prior, um, but maybe not as, as, as energetic as certainly what's happened uh, during the crisis. Uh, you also touched, Daryl, before on cold chain and food security. So in regards to that, there was prior, certainly prior by a year or two uh, or so prior to the COVID period, uh, a consolidation of the cold chain space uh, mainly in North America, Europe, but also in the APAC region. Um, and I know you've got some knowledge of that. Are we likely to see, uh, well, first of all, let's discuss what's been taking place in the REIT and, and cold chain space. And then can we talk a little bit about um, any areas or segments or sectors of the market that you see that are currently more susceptible to consolidation than others? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, I mean, you know, it's public knowledge. I mean, you can go back and look at recent transactions like the Emergent and Linear to see, you know, and prior to that in Miracle, to, to see, you know, just some of the value that has been placed on, on good cold chain assets. Um, speaking of, for this part of the world, you know, there's a, there's a big initiative here in the GCC to, um, you know, lessen the dependence on import food. Uh, we spend a lot of money on, on importing produce into the region. Um, and you know, the opportunity now to use agricultural technology uh, to you know, turn you know, what is a, a reasonably uh, challenging environment to have farms and everything else, at least all year, year round, um, to use that technology to be able to do just that. 
and to produce product for domestic consumption, but also for regional export and for greater markets beyond the region. Um, that's a big focus of a lot of the GCC governments, particularly here in the UAE, particularly in Oman, and particularly in Saudi Arabia, the, the, the three main drivers of that. Vertical farming is on the rise. And so that initiative, that focus, is lending itself to increased need for assets that support distribution, warehousing, value-add services, um, pack houses, et cetera. Um, and so that's part of a, a strategy across the region to diversify away from its traditional GDP um, you know, sectors, oil and gas mainly, uh, and diversification. But it's also a little bit around um, taking a gap in the market and saying, well, how can we play a role in solving um, you know the world's food problem. Uh, you know it's really interesting when you read you know, things like the, you know the World Food Group and you look at their programs. There is no problem with with you know the world has more than enough food to feed itself, um, but its distribution of it and where that sits can sometimes mean that it's a bit more challenging. In Australia, it was really interesting listening to Michael Byrne uh, on your podcast the other day, Kim, when he talked about Australia's strategy around keeping its export volumes and export channels alive. You know, Australia produces 73 million meal potentials every year for a market of 26 million. And so its export capability in that area is enormous. Now, when you put that into context, what does that require? It requires cold chain assets, it requires connected networks, it requires export capability in the form of air freight and sea freight. And I think what we're seeing here in this region is a maturing of those supply lines as those new tech agricultural projects come to life. And I think that's a big focus here. We've seen a lot of investment in it. And I think we'll see a lot of logistics companies and we already are making, uh, you know, taking a closer look at the region and just, you know, looking at what opportunities that presents them in terms of acquiring assets in here or building assets in here. As we know, you know, cold chain assets are a reasonably attractive asset from an operating perspective and also from a property play perspective. Thanks, Gerald. Dom, any thoughts from your side in relation to any areas of consolidation that you're seeing taking place or any uh, sweet spots that may be uh, opportunistic for investors? Yeah, look, I'll touch on again this whole um, cold chain uh, angle. Um, you know, certainly, you know, companies that are out there to increase their footprint, so, you know, Daryl, you, you speak about the, uh, the property play there, um, yeah, in a lot of the supply chain elements, um, you know, the uh, the EBITDAs that are out there, you know, they're all sub 5% even. Uh, you, you introduce a property play into the mix uh, and that's when things get really interesting. That's when you're starting to see um, upwards on uh, under 10 to 20 type percents even that are out there uh, in terms of return even. So, you know, certainly um, yeah, having a... Um, uh, uh, footprint and, and having um, the, the right sort of uh, property base uh, outcome in any supply chain environment um, is really a good uh, risk uh, balancing uh, and mitigation uh, side altogether. Uh, and that's where I'm seeing a lot of the, um, the activity right now um, uh, above uh, and beyond all the, the stuff we've spoken about already in terms of the digital transformations and so forth that are out there. Yeah. Yep. The same, Dominic. We've seen a lot of interest in Africa as, as a next market spot, and part of that was always about developing Africa for an outbound market, particularly for food, for minerals, resources. Um, but now we're seeing uh, increasingly organisations talking to us about establishing warehousing footprints in there for forward inventory, 
for what is essentially going to become a large you know, consumer marketplace as Africa matures. And we're seeing that all over Africa at the present moment. So, you know, Africa's a hot spot and, and there's a lot of interest in that. Um, GCC land transport, cross-border land transport's a hot spot, um, particularly between Saudi and the UAE. And uh, as the transporters mature and become more sophisticated um, and there's more compliance and safety focus on those industries, then that's also driving yields. And so that becomes attractive to the more mature transport operators to enter this market or to consolidate assets. Last mile is of interest. Um, once again, Africa is a last mile uh, point of entry for many of the e-commerce markets. You see uh, Juma the other day just raised $10 billion to uh, commercialize its, its last mile delivery network across Africa. Previously, that last mile network only served Juma marketplace traffic. Now they'll open that up as a pure logistics trade for other um, companies requiring a logistics solution in Africa. And so that's going to be a massive play because now you'll have, you know, eventually what will be one of the early movers in creating the connected last mile network uh, across Africa. Um, and Juma, of course, is the largest marketplace in, in Africa today. And, you know, $10 billion buys a lot of lot of footprint. Um, digital logistics, and we touched on that, but that's a, that's a hotspot. Um, so can you know, anything that's connected in that digital space that allows us to run connected networks or to build our channels out, to control the customer data, to be able to reshop and to represent uh, to those, that, those data points, you know, additional catalogs, price point sensitivity catalogs, all those sort of elements drive volume into our supply chains. And so you know, that's a hot spot. And then lastly, the, you know, building the connected networks, um, the ability to be able to get into a more integrated solution across all your channels is another hotspot where you know okay you may be a multimodal provider and sort of sea or air or ocean or whatever it may be but having that connected ground footprint the value-added services the customs compliance areas are all going to be parts of what is you know the future trend as we get into 2021 and that's reflective of the inquiries we're seeing today yeah and look daryl um just on the inquiries um you know, that, that's a that's an excellent um, you know wrap up from a from an industry perspective. But um, as a whole, we're just seeing a lot of our clients asking for help, um, asking for help on on the M and A side because at the end of the day, uh, during this risky time um, and throughout the whole crisis, even um, it's all about making sure that um, we can balance risk from a buyer side as well as the, the seller side, and and making sure that the risk profiles um, just getting a a, a second opinion and, and getting some external help even is where I'm seeing a lot of the, um, the inquiries of this company that are just needing help full stop even. And, um, you know, having a lot of experience uh, in this area, there are lots of tools that are out there that we're helping our clients with. And, and you know, when companies are just needing help on the M&A side, they're needing a lot of help because there's just so many good deals out there right now. Um, and it's all about, you know, how to position things, you know, from, from a buyer side and even from a seller side even, um, you know, taking advantage of these uh, this 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 situation we're in right now, um, you know, getting help on you know really dressing up um, the organisation, making sure there's a very um, solid, uh, punchy uh, story that comes along with uh, being able to package uh, the the clients' uh, IMs and the company informations that are out there, uh, and making sure it's positioned um, to the very savvy buyers that are out there. So we've seen a lot of. Um, yeah, buyers and sellers that are just needing a lot more help right now, um, getting some industry experts uh, 
like ourselves to really just help them through all this. And um, and, and along uh, with all this um, comes with a whole lot of tools as well. You know, we've uh, there are a lot of ways to you know, balance that risk from a from a buyer side as well as a seller side. Um, you know, there's tools around the whole uh, MAE clauses. You know, from from a material adverse effect clause and and how we can you know, really pull things back um, uh, from a buyer side if required. Uh, really play with timelines and so forth as well to to really gain maximum value um, from both parties as well. Um, and that being the case, you know, this the, the help that um, companies that are asking for is really around um, you know helping with uh, balancing risk, uh, helping with um, making sure that uh, the right customer pipelines are in play that's been dressed up well. Um, you know, I referred to earlier around the the whole people side. Uh, and that management um, style around uh, people of uh, labour transitions and so forth, and really the the language of um, being able to access information. Um, so you know a lot of um, our clients um, find it quite hard in in this uh, this situation right now um, to really uh, balance risk and get access to a certain information even. And um, they're the sort of inquiries and that sort of the help that uh, we've seen really a, a large influx on and. Um, it's really um, just a great thing to be able to help all these companies um, through this uh, transition and through this, uh, this crisis that we're going through right now. You know, from lock stock structures, lock, lock box structures, um, uh, the technology side, insurances and so forth, um, and really the whole um, interim operating environments even, you know, being able to talk to the sellers to get information and, and really balance that whole um uh, tools that are out there to make things a lot more streamlined from from our clients itself. It's uh, it's a good position to be in right now, that's for sure. Thanks, Don. Uh, Daryl, I wanted to get from you as a, as a quick wrap-up, actually, from both of you. So for those uh, in the audience that have a business that are looking to prepare for sale uh, or for investment, um, interested in a merger opportunity, what, what would be two or three really key bullet points that, that, that owners should be looking at or key stakeholders should be looking at in terms of preparation on the sell side? Yeah, look, absolutely getting that. If you're on the seller side, um, absolutely getting the story right. Like, uh, at the moment, there is a, a bit of an avalanche of buyers in the marketplace looking for assets. There's a perception that they will come relatively cheaper or more affordable because of what we've just been through. Um, for sellers, there's a lot of strategic value in what they have and what they've developed, and that's partially why they're of interest to, to buyers. So getting that story right, spending time on your strategy, spending time, as Dominic mentioned earlier, getting your contractual relationships uh, watertight through this period that adds some plain value understanding where your technology fits in that storyboard and how that can plug into a potential buyer to give them that next leap of value. Um, and then once again, and, and I don't mean this to sort of you know, push the just executive by any means, but you know, using industry experts to help you shape that message and to connect to it. You know, we, we tend to forget that in this particular space in logistics and supply chain, most transactions are still principle to principle driven. Um, quietly at the back end of them. And the first time you know that there was a transaction to occur is when all of a sudden there's a press release that announced the sale. Now, those transactions normally come about because there's 
parties in the middle that are either discreetly managing that principal-to-principal relationship or bringing that party to life. And I think, you know, so now's the time to engage your wider circle of advisors, talk to them about your strategy, understand what that strategy requirement needs in terms of filling that gap. So don't go out blindly, go out strategically, using the network of advisors to bring you those targets, to, to go through that shortlisting process, to accelerate the deals that may not be in market, but it may be of interest and be the perfect fit. Use the advisors to engage that confidentially so you don't have a, uh, you know, a number of bees around the honeypot wanting to take a piece of it um, and, and move it through nice and quietly and make sure it's aligned to your strategy. So you know, key takeaways is you know, principle to principle deals, use your advisors to, to connect to those networks, um, understand where the value sits in the transaction relative to your strategy and use your advisors to help shape that strategy. Mm-hmm. Dom, anything to add from your side? Yeah, look, while we're on the topic of uh, from, from the seller's side, um, you know, from my perspective, um, packaging value is an art. Um, it's an art that generally a lot of sellers don't have. Um, and being able to package value whereby uh, you're extracting all the, the value within your organisation and packaging it in a way that it's easy to tell a story um, to a potential buyer even um, is really the main focus um, for any seller today, that's for sure. Um, and look, in saying all that as well, um, making sure the your ducks are all lined up as well. And I, I speak um, about um, customers, you know, uh, making sure that, that the pipelines are all in play there, you know, making sure that working capital can be uh, employed in the best way possible, uh, looking at short-term um, uh, contracts as well as uh, medium long-term contracts as well, uh, being able to highlight what that is uh, to potential buyers out there, uh, making sure that um, the people within the organisation um, are well informed. You know, that transition of uh, of labour from full-time to part-time as we claw back um, resources and so forth, but being able to communicate with the uh, people within the the sales environment is is very a critical part throughout this whole process here. Full stop, and making sure that um, the language um, that's out there, um, you know, I'm I'm make reference to this MAE clause. I mean, the, the language um, for MAE clauses didn't even exist even um, you know, pre um, COVID even. So you know, making sure that uh, the right language is is uh, being referenced. Um, and very clearly articulated that to uh, any potential buyer that's out there. So really getting your ducks in order is, 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 is critical, um, but more importantly, extracting value and packaging the value is probably my biggest hotspot um, people have put out there um, for any seller, that's for sure. Tim, I just want to just jump in quick. I know you're probably trying to wrap it up, but just there's something that Dominic just said that springs to mind, and I guess this is for... Now, a lot of companies have gone through a, a tough period. Um, let's not let's not discount that. You know, their, their working capital reserves may be somewhat compressed at the present moment, um, and they may be doing it tough. And for a lot of those those um, you know principal uh, owner led businesses, um, the option to sell or to quickly exit um, you know becomes a, a real realistic option for them when you know cash is tough or they cash through their balance sheets. Um, so yeah, a little bit of advice for those companies that may be going through that and considering a sale or considering what their options look like is you know, don't leave it too late. Um, you know, I think, you know, Dominic, you'll smile when I say this, but you know, how many times do we get a, a call 
from an SME to say, you know, look, I want to sell my business. I want to exit now. And when you get under the skin of it, you find out that actually we're probably four or five months too late and the business is not survivable in the shape or form it is um, because it simply doesn't have the lifespan to go through a, a proper sale process. And so you end up disposing of assets or, you know, to use the word carefully, a fire sale um, without really realizing too much value. They, they back themselves into the corner because as they've got further and further into that challenging time, the options have diminished. And so, you know, my advice to companies that are that are sort of going through a consideration of what they do next or maybe going through it tough is don't leave it too late to come and engage advisors to talk about what the options may be. The earlier you do that, the more options may, may be existing for you, whether it's a, a partial sale, a strategic investor, uh, whether it's a capital raising that you can leverage uh, from what you do have left, whether it's a forward-looking value type arrangement based on the customer contracts that haven't diminished out of the business. But the longer you leave that, the more risk there is to your business, the more risk your options will narrow, the more risk you'll lose good staff, you'll potentially lose customers, and the harder it is for you to, to you know, realize the value that probably existed in your business before COVID-19. So you know, don't leave it too late, engage. Conversations don't cost anything. So, you know, it's, 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 it's always good to have an external sounding board and saying, well, you know, what are my deal options? What is my structuring? This is the cards on the table. Um, and quite often you'll find that they can, if you've got time, can be packaged into or positioned in a way that achieves some form of strategic value and secures the future of that business uh, in an appropriate way rather than having a sort of stress sales. So, uh, Thanks, Daryl. Um, yeah, great. Thank you. And, and I know you'd both be uh, more than happy to have a quick chat to, to people in regards to any inquiries. So uh, that's a given and we'll make sure the contact details are available. Uh, Don Rigo from Sydney, uh, thank you. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it, Don. And Daryl. And Daryl uh, in Dubai, thanks again for your time. Uh, appreciate your participation as well. Thanks, Kim, and I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and look forward to the next one. Great. And so to everybody in the audience, we know your time is valuable. We do appreciate you joining us. Um, Please have a look at our YouTube channel if you wish, our Logistics Executive TV, for uh, any of the other podcasts that we're doing. We appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, uh, keep your distance, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks.